Almighty God, you alone can order the unruly wills and passions of sinful men. Grant to your people that we may love what you command and desire what you promise, so that among the many and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You might reckon that if you sought to honour God in your life, then there's a chance that he'd recognise that. Perhaps he'd want to bless you in some way, or at least make some things a little easier for you. But the reality is really often quite different. In fact, sometimes it seems that the more earnestly we seek to please God, the harder it becomes. The more sorrow and suffering comes our way. And like David in the Psalms, we find ourselves thinking, if not praying, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? It might surprise you to know that that's a really common prayer in the Psalms. So we shouldn't be afraid to ask God hard questions. We won't hurt his feelings and we can't take him by surprise. And perhaps the hardest question to ask is not why do God's people suffer, but rather why do the wicked prosper? And it's true, they do. So often we see it all around us. Children are abused and people are murdered. While crime bosses, they seem to live into their 90s. And then they die in their sleep, surrounded by family that loves them, or perhaps loves their money. The suffering of the innocent is hard enough to bear. But it's compounded when we see wicked men prosper, perhaps in spite of their evil, but seemingly because of it. Witnessing that's a real problem, but it's not a new problem. Asaph faced it 3,000 years ago. Asaph led the choir of Israel and he wrote 12 psalms. He wrote Psalm 73 to 83 and Psalm 50. And like us, Asaph is persuaded, at least in his head, that God is good to his people. So he says in his opening sentence of Psalm 73, he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph knew that this was the commitment that God had made to his people. It was a commitment grounded in God's covenant vow at Mount Sinai. And God's words to Israel were this. He said, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, You'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's the truth that's rattling around in Asaph's head. But Asaph has come face to face with people and situations that would indicate otherwise. Is it possible that God is not good? And even worse, that he blesses the wicked? Well, that's the place where Asaph's mind went and now, with great relief, he wants to testify to the people of God. So he says in verse 2, 
But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. Asaph is aware that he'd almost fallen to his spiritual death. He'd come close to the worst possible crisis, a crisis of losing confidence in God's goodness. He'd come up against something far worse than physical death. He'd almost abandoned his God because he thought that God had abandoned him. So what was it that made Asaph almost give up his faith? Well, the answer is simple. It's envy. Asaph says so in verse 3. He says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Can you identify with Asaph? He's focused all of his attention on the prosperity of the ungodly and he's coveted everything that displeases God. He sees the wicked in their arrogance. Well, they seem to have it all. And their defiance seems blessed rather than cursed. Despite their pride, their calloused hearts, their conceit, they enjoy health and wealth and contentment all the days of their lives. Even their blasphemous sniggering seems to escape any real consequence. And everything within Asaph screams in protest. It's just not right. Everything he thought he knew about God and his commitment to Israel, well, it now seems to be a lie. At best, God was ignoring the wickedness of the ungodly, and at worst, he appears to be actively blessing it. Now, I don't think for a moment that Asaph's experience is unique to him or his world. We know from our own experience that people break the law with impunity because they know that the financial reward is greater than any legislative fine or penalty. We know that if you refuse to run your business within the cash economy, then it's not honesty that's rewarded, but deceit. And what makes matters worse is that deceit, well, it's not only happening, it's accepted as normal practice, it's praised as good management. With a wry grin, they'll call it creative accounting, and they act as if defrauding the government is a victimless crime. And Asaph laments the same sort of thing happening in his day. The wicked who should be scorned instead have become the recipients of respect and honour. And they scoff at any thought that God is watching them. In verse 10, Asaph says, Their people turn to them, that's the wicked, and they drink up waters in abundance. They say, how could God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They go on amassing wealth. So where's the justice? Why is it that the rich and the powerful seem so often to operate above the law? But why do politicians seem to do themselves and their cronies so many favours? Why do so many union bosses live their lives a cut above their members? It's the sort of thing that can simply make you angry and cynical, not just about life, but also about God. You can become so angry and so obsessed by the injustice of it all that you begin to think that following God has been a total waste of time. All it brings is loss and not reward. As Asaph says from verse 13, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishment. 
And Asaph here is saying something really important, not only to Israel, but also to us. You see, if God's not good to his own, then what's the point of being faithful to him? If we can't be sure that God is good, then the promise of the gospel seems uncertain at best and perhaps even fraudulent. Asaph is like a man groping in the dark. Any sense of God's goodness has gone. He's obsessed with one thing and one thing only, the prosperity of the wicked. Perhaps that's why he views the wicked so idealistically. Look closely and you see that the wicked will have chinks in their armour. At best they might buy happiness in the short term in their prosperity, but they'll never find eternal joy in their wickedness. But Asaph's too caught up with himself to see that. He only sees with blinkered eyes at a distance. He only sees with envious eyes. The faith and truth that Asaph knows in his head, it's out of step with his experience. In his envy, Asaph has believed a lie and he has stopped trusting in God and his word. But Asaph has another problem, apart from envy. You see, he's impatient. He wants to be rewarded for his piety straight away. Have you ever felt that desire? The desire for immediate reward when you obey God, as if somehow that's what we deserve. Prosperity preachers will tell us exactly that. that health, wealth, healing and happiness are God's promises for your best life now, they say. And it's the same message that's coming from our culture what we receive it daily from just about every advertisement that you might see or hear. You can expect immediate reward and instant gratification. After all, you deserve it. In a world of fast credit, fast food and text messaging, delayed gratification seems more incomprehensible than virtuous. And so at this point in the psalm, Asaph seems to have reached his lowest point and it shocks him back into reality. He realises just in time that he's in danger. In danger of not only losing his way, but also leading others astray. He says in verse 15, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. So he stops in his tracks and he tries to understand the disconnect between his faith and his experience, between reality and perception. But envy and anger and impatience have made Asaph pretty weary. As he says from verse 16, When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Asaph's first response is to try to understand what he sees and how he feels without reference to God or his word. Not surprisingly, he finds few answers and certainly no resolution. Things only become clear to Asaph when he enters God's sanctuary, the place where God is determined to meet with his people. For Asaph, it was like seeing reality from God's point of view. 
It was like putting up a periscope from the depths of his claustrophobic obsessiveness. His mind, having now entered the eternity where God dwells, Asaph is now able to see the big picture. And once there, God teaches him and us four things. Firstly, he teaches us that we need to keep the end in mind. The success of the wicked will always look different in the light of eternity. Have a look from verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you rise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You know, so often these days as Christians we resist the lies of our surrounding culture and the accusation is made that we shall find ourselves on the wrong side of history. I always find such a claim extraordinary and even slightly amusing, given that one of the certainties of our faith is that of all people, we will most certainly be on the right side of history. Christ's resurrection and his ascension guarantees that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So whether or not we're on the wrong side of history just depends on who you believe and whose time scale you're referencing. Though for now we might be tempted to envy the wicked who appear to have it all, the reality is that the wicked are on their way to destruction and unless they repent that's where they shall end up. Hardly the sort of thing that we would want to envy. Second thing that God teaches Asaph and us is that we need to take an honest look at ourselves. Asaph has looked at the future of the wicked and now he looks at himself. From verse 21 he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. As Asaph comes to his senses, he sees himself as God does. He describes himself as a bitter man, like a wild animal who follows only his brute instincts. His description is not unlike that of King Nebuchadnezzar, who due to his pride lost his mind for seven years and was reduced to the behaviour of a wild animal. It's worth noticing that Asaph's assessment and confession of his condition, well, it's unqualified. There's no but anywhere here. He offers no excuse for his behaviour. It's so easy for us to be angry or bitter about an injustice that may be apparent or real. We find ourselves constantly turning it over in our heads and we replay the same conversations. If an injustice done against you is real, then you need to have it addressed or you need to let it go. If we hold on to anger for long enough, it will destroy us. Though in God's purposes no injustice ever goes unpunished, some wrongs will not be righted until the day of God's judgment. But if, like Asaph, it's largely envy that drives our anger, then it's not resolve and patience we need, it's repentance and confession. The third thing that Asaph teaches us is that God never stops loving his people. Even though Asaph envies and desires all that breaks God's heart, even though he's like an ignorant beast before God, wallowing in self-pity and passive aggression, that God nonetheless remains good to Asaph 
God never gives up on Asaph. God stays right by Asaph's side. As Asaph puts it in verse 23, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Asaph understands that even whilst he was resentful, God took him by the right hand as a father would take hold of a rebellious child. God kept Asaph safe, mostly from himself. And though he thrashed against God, God refused to let him go. The fog in Asaph's head is beginning to clear. He's looked forward and seen the destiny of the wicked. He's looked back and seen God's faithfulness and his own folly. And now he looks forward again and he sees his own destiny. And that's the fourth thing that God teaches us. As Asaph says in verse 24, You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Asaph has remembered where he is ultimately headed. And when he steps into the glory of the new creation, and with face unveiled he contemplates the Lord's glory face to face, then he shall know fully, even as he is fully known. Asaph won't be looking back with despair and envy from the wrong side of history. For no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no human mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But these things God has revealed to us by his spirit. And once we know what God has revealed to those who love him, we shall always see the present in the light of the future. But we'll understand that unfaithfulness and injustice will never go unpunished. We'll understand that nothing the wicked have will last. But we'll know that the pure in heart will one day see God and that we who are God's sons and daughters through faith in Christ Jesus shall spend eternity in his presence. And once we realise all of this, then our proper response shall be as Asaph says in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. And as a description of a Christian's desire for God, this verse is beautifully clear and simple. And yet to take hold of this reality and to keep it is neither easy or automatic. Like Asaph, we need to grasp it with both hands. And it's important that we do that because desiring after God fulfills the greatest of his commandments. That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul and all our mind and our strength. And we can only do that when, like Asaph, we come to God's sanctuary. We come to the place where we meet with God. The place where we find forgiveness for all our sins. The place where eternal intercession is made for us. The place where we can draw near to God with the full assurance that faith brings. The place where our hearts are cleansed from a guilty conscience. And that place, that sanctuary into which we come, well, it's not the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's not St Peter's Cathedral in Rome or even Armadale, and it's not St. Augustine's in Immorel. It's to the sanctuary of our Saviour that we come, 
as we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For whom have we in heaven who intercedes for us? There is none but him, and earth has nothing we desire that does compare with him. For by him do we approach God's eternal throne with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace. And it's this thought that centres us as Christians. It's this thought that draws us to our Father in heaven again and again and again. And it's not that we don't enjoy all of God's good gifts of creation. We can and we should. And nor do we discount our deepest longings and our real needs that might be met by our spouse, our friends or our church. For desiring God above all else does not turn us into hermits or monks. But it does mean that we don't need a reward in this life. And the reason for that is that God himself is our reward. That God is never the means to an end. He's always the end itself. And in coming to this understanding, with Asaph we have come full circle. In the face of experiences that seem to deny it, we began with the declaration that God is good to his own. And we end with the affirmation that God is good to be near. And so with Asaph we can say, our flesh and our heart may fail, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Those who are far from him will perish. He'll destroy all that are unfaithful to him. But as for us, it's good to be near God. For we have made the sovereign Lord our refuge and we shall tell of all his deeds. Amen.